it's time to sit back and relax with your favorite drink. And listen. Muffins. Look, kid, said the older security guard with the slightly pudgy beer belly which threatened to pop out of his dark grey button-down shirt. This job is real easy. The name Pontiac Security Services was emblazoned on a black and red patch on his left shoulder. Over his left breast pocket was a badge which read, Pontiac Security, reliable, effective, always ready. Over his right breast pocket was a name tag which read Schmidt. He ran his right hand over his balding head and stretched. Yep, kid, this is easy money. Another security officer sat on a well-padded chair staring at a huge black wraparound desk which faced a grey painted wall that mounted banks with CCTV monitors. Each monitor was labelled with a white number from 1 to 46 and each showed various locations of the surrounding building and grounds. Bradford Kiefer Shaw, the other security officer, nodded slightly as he took in the panorama of monitors and locations. At 24, Bradford was much younger than the veteran security officer, lean, with curly reddish-brown hair indicative of his Scottish heritage. The security office was 15 feet by 35 feet, a large office for a single person, but that was necessary because of the banks of monitors which lined the walls, and although the security office had no windows, it was well lit. As you can see, with 46 monitors that cover roughly 80% of this complex, as well as the parking garage and the main entrances, continued the older security guard. Cameras cover the stairwells, access doors to the various departments, break areas, and, well, just read your post orders. In it, you'll find a list of cameras and what areas they're covering. Security Officer Schmidt reached into a drawer at the desk and handed Bradford a white laminated binder marked Pontiac Security Services Post Orders for the Car Building, 700 South Flower Street, Los Angeles, CA. You, um, said that the cameras cover 80% of the area, said Bradford. Since moving to the States a little over a year ago, he still retained a slight Scottish accent. Will I be expected to go out and check on the other 20% that the monitors don't cover? Nope, said Schmidt. You'll spend the majority of your 10-hour shift here in the security office monitoring rooms. Your job is simply to observe and report. If you see anything unusual, illegal or dangerous to the building's occupants, you'll call the emergency contact number and report the incident. Otherwise, the only challenges you'll likely face are boredom and sleepiness. Schmidt checked his watch. He was coming to the end of his shift, and this new kid seemed bright enough. He'd be fine on his own for the first night, with just a brief orientation. The room next to the security office is one of the break rooms. There's actually three on this floor. They've refrigerated drinks, snacks, and microwavable meals. Feel free to get yourself an energy drink if you need to. Just, for goodness sakes, don't fall asleep. And if you do, don't get caught. Most of the day shift people usually leave at around 6pm. Skeleton crew might work a little overtime, but all of the office workers need to be out by 9pm. It's pretty much a ghost town during that time, and emptier after that. Well, do you have any questions? Bradford flipped over the first few pages of his post orders, eager to familiarize himself with his duties in his new surroundings. No, I should be good. 
Stay in the security office. Monitor the cameras. Report any suspicions or dangerous activities to the emergency contact number. And uh, don't fall asleep. Yep, said Schmidt. Oh, a couple more things before I forget. Cleaning crew comes in at around six tonight. Usually four of them, all Mexicans. And they're usually done by nine. Keep an eye on them when they go through the office cubicle spaces, because, well, we don't want any of the employees complaining that their stuff went missing when they arrive to work in the morning. Okay, replied Bradford. Seriously, said Schmidt. Old bloody nag got fired because six computer monitors and a bunch of laptops came up missing. Turns out people from the last cleaning company had snatched them up from one of the training classrooms. Cleaning company was run by a bunch of people from Albania. Uh, anyway, we found out old bloody Ned was asleep at his post, so he was booted from Pontiac Security. Ah, uh, I see, said Bradford. Also, before you clock out when your shift ends, you need to take the video recording disc out of the mainframe and replace it with a blank one. Schmidt pointed at another black table to the left of the main desk where the computer tower sat that held the discs which recorded everything the cameras monitored. After every shift, we need to replace the DVR recording disc with a blank one. We keep the recordings for about a month, then purge the data and reuse the blank disc again, continued Schmidt. Take the DVR and put it in one of these white plastic sleeves and put it in this outgoing mail basket. Oh, uh, be sure to label it with a date and your time of shift. Then replace it with one of the blank discs in the incoming mail basket. Any questions? Um, at the end of my shift, make sure that the cleaning crew is out and replace the old DVR recording disc with a new one before leaving, said Bradford. Correct, said Schmidt, and report anything unusual, hazardous or suspicious to the emergency contact number. Oh, and remember, don't fall asleep. Right, don't fall asleep. Stay in the security office. Don't let anyone in unless I'm told. Don't come out unless you or anyone else comes to get me, smirked Bradford in his best British comedy accent. Huh? said Schmidt. Bradford smiled awkwardly, seeing that his attempt at levity failed. Oh, a Monty Python reference, you know, from that movie where they go looking for the Holy Grail and they get attacked by a hungry big-toothed bunny rabbit. Son, did you pass your drug screening test? said Schmidt. Is that some of that new young people humor you college-age folks think so funny? Bradford had never graduated college, having only gone to a few community college classes in Ohio before he got bored. Oh, uh, yeah, new college humor, ah, Bradford said weakly. Well, I'll never understand you young folks, replied Schmidt, picking up his lunch cooler and an old desk fan, fishing his car keys out of his pockets. Okay, kid, I'm out. You got the bridge. You got the bridge, get it? That's real Navy lingo there, kid. Maybe you should think about joining the military. I got the bridge. Got it, Captain Kirk, said Bradford, saluting. Schmidt wiped his access card at the reader next to the windowless double doors leading into the security room. It beeped softly before unlocking and Schmidt stepped out mumbling something about back in the day when men were men and girls were girls. Commies were the bad guys, John Wayne was the good guy, and real cowboys were real. Bradford decided that he liked old Officer Schmidt. He reminded him a lot of his old clueless grandpa back in Ohio. 
The drive from Ohio had been long and arduous, especially since he had to take a lot of rural highways and back country roads. But here he finally was on the west coast in the great city of Los Angeles. Admittedly, he was tired from the long journey, having arrived in the city only four days earlier, and he hadn't got a decent chance to catch up on any good sleep. He'd used almost the last of his savings to rent a cheap hotel in an equally cheap neck of the city, and was living on cans of beanie weenies and Vienna sausages. But at least he was fortunate enough to answer an ad on Craigslist for this security officer position on the morning he arrived. Pontiac Security Services was hurting for people to work, as the COVID-19 pandemic was keeping people at home and collecting more in unemployment per week than if they actually got a job. So after a day and a half of security guard training, Bradford found himself the graduate of the Pontiac Security Officer Institute, class of 3.51pm, Wednesday afternoon. It was now Thursday, and Bradford's 10-hour shift ran from 4pm in the evening to 2am in the morning. Normally his shift would start at 6pm, but he was required to come in two hours early today for orientation training for this site. Officer Schmidt's security orientation training barely lasted 15 minutes. Bradford began reading the binder which held his post orders. The car building, which stood at the 700 block of South Flower Street, Los Angeles, 90017, was a tall, multi-story building of dark, tinted, thick glass. It was built atop several glass-fronted stores and was actually connected to a shopping plaza. A parking garage was also connected to the car building, which went up to the first three floors of the 15-story building, including one level below ground. Above the first-floor stores and shopping plaza, the building provided sectioned office spaces for several businesses and services. Pontiac Security was responsible for providing security monitoring for the first three floors above the shopping area and monitoring for the parking garage. The first floor above the shops consisted mostly of maintenance rooms, stock room, and storage areas for the shops below. The second floor consisted of legal offices, accounting firms, travel offices, and a few medical practice services as well. The third floor was entirely dedicated to an asset recovery business, a nicer term to describe a debt collection office where dedicated people call the indebted at all hours of the day and night, demanding payment. The other parts of the building were segregated by security locked doors and elevators, and only people with the right access cards were allowed to use them, to access the different parts of the building. Therefore, theoretically, anyone without the proper programming in their access card would not be able to gain access to a part of the building which they did not have access to. Other security services also provided security to the different parts of the building not covered by Pontiac Security, and it was considered taboo to cross into another company's area of responsibility. Basically, Bradford was only to monitor everything within his scope of responsibilities and let the other security services monitor theirs. Bradford looked at the rows upon rows of monitors mounted on the wall in front of him, matching them to the list of monitors in his post orders. As it turned out, they were arranged in a very easy-to-understand pattern. The first six monitors on the top row were cameras mounted on the top floor of the parking garage, the following 12 monitors were located in various areas inside the third floor of the building. The first six monitors on the second row were cameras mounted on the middle floor of the parking garage, and the following 12 monitors were located in various areas inside the second floor. 
while the bottom first six monitors were connected to cameras mounted on the first floor parking garage, while the following 12 monitors were located inside the first floor. The last four monitors were set separately and were connected to cameras which were monitoring the main entrance to the ground floor elevators and stairs. Soon, Bradford had pretty much memorized where all the cameras were located and which areas they surveyed. She had anything require particular watching from a specific area. Bradford simply had to type in the monitor's number into a keypad on the desk and press the manual control button on a joystick. He then would have manual control of the camera and would be able to track anyone he wanted, alternately zooming in and zooming out as needed. Bradford practiced this by using the monitors to zoom in on the rear end of a particularly attractive young blonde female wearing cut-off denim shorts and a pink tank top as she walked from a gynecologist's office on the second floor and tracked her as she took the elevators to the first floor parking garage until she got into her white Honda Accord. He did this a few more times, next following two young Latina and Asian ladies as they walked to one of the break rooms on the third floor, then by zooming in on a fit-looking girl walking up the stairs in tight-fitting pink capri pants, white sandals, and a yellow blouse, before he remembered that everything he did was being recorded on the DVRs. He scanned the monitors for the next few hours, alternately watching the parking garage, then the offices on the second floor, then the collection agency on the third. The security monitoring office was located at the end of a large hallway next to a break room on the first floor above all the fancy stores. It wasn't as populated on this floor as this was where the offices of the store managers were located, as well as building maintenance workers, cleaning custodians, and a few store workers who would bring down more stock merchandise to the stores. The collection agency on the third floor was expansive and was divided up into several sections, such as collections, disputes, training, and so on. It was a cubicle farm for literally hundreds of determined people sitting in front of a computer, calling people across the United States and demanding that their debts be settled. Getting bored, Bradford decided to try his vehicle in the parking garage. If you remember correctly, it was in lot E on the second floor of the garage as he took control of the garage cameras on the second floor and began searching. As luck would have it, his vehicle was parked in part of the 20% of the areas not covered by the cameras. It was creeping past six, and Bradford noticed that it wasn't getting any cooler in the security office. In fact, it seemed to be getting warmer. He got up, stretched, and looked around the office until he found the thermostat mounted on the wall. He looked at the little box and saw that the indicator was at 85 degrees. Underneath the thermostat was a handwritten note which read, Thermostat broken. Do not touch. Maintenance has been notified. It was dated one week ago. Oh, great, thought Bradford. That's why Schmidt had the desk fan. What else did he forget to tell me? Needing something to cool himself off and keep himself alert, he decided to go next door to the break room to get an energy drink. Walking out into the hall, he swiped his access card and heard the break room door beep as the magnetic lock disengaged. Upon entering, he was hit by the refreshingly chilly air of the air-conditioned room. Several snack and soda machines lied the pristine white walls. Refrigerators filled with microwavable foods lined a separate room, along with sinks and counters on which sat three microwaves. Two men were in the break room, 
sitting separately at different tables because of the uh, social distancing restrictions. By the look of their light grey uniforms, Bradford figured that they were either part of the maintenance or custodial crew. They looked Hispanic and were speaking amongst themselves until Bradford walked in. A television mounted on the wall was tuned into a Spanish-speaking channel. He said hello, and they nodded towards him courteously, although they said nothing. Bradford, somewhat self-consciously, walked towards an ice-cold soda machine, looking for an energy drink, and was surprised to find that the cheapest caffeinated drink in the machine cost three dollars, with the energy drink he was looking for costing even more. He reached into his pockets and pulled out two crumpled one-dollar bills and eighty-six cents. Things are a little bit more expensive here, they say, said a young Latino male seated at the table, smiling. The name embroidered on his shirt said Carlo. Bradford smiled back, wondering what it was about him that gave it away that he wasn't a native of L.A. The cup and ice water are free, I say, said an older Latino man, pointing at the separate room with the refrigerators of pre-packaged meals and microwaves. Manuel was the name embroidered on his shirt. Oh, uh, thank you, said Bradford, sheepishly walking into the next room. Sure enough, there were plastic cups resting inside a cup dispenser next to an ice maker and a water machine. Taking a cup and filling it with iced water, he downed it quickly, feeling a little bit refreshed. He drank another cupful, then, filling the cup one more time, he walked out. By then, the workers were walking out of the door and Bradford followed them out. Turning left, he walked back to the security office, swiping his badge and entering. There was no window to the outside to open, and the air was beginning to get stifling. Thinking that it really wouldn't hurt anything, Bradford decided to take one of the rolling chairs in the office and and used it to prop open the door. The cooler air from the hallway would help circulate the warmer, staler air in the room, and there was a camera monitoring this hallway to alert him if anyone else was approaching. Besides, it was nearly 8pm, and just like Schmidt said, the building had rapidly turned into a ghost town. Where the parking garage was nearly full when he arrived at 4pm, there were now only a handful of cars left. The water in the open security office door only helped a little bit in keeping Bradford alert, but he found that his eyelids were getting heavy. Bradford finally had to admit that his days of driving cross-country and his whirlwind schedule once he arrived in L.A., combined with his lack of sleep, was getting the best of him. He was losing focus even after he noticed the same fit and petite girl from earlier, with the pink capris and yellow blouse, leaving the third-floor offices heading towards the stairs that led to the parking garage. He wasn't even interested in turning a camera to follow her as she bounced down the stairs. Groaning, Bradford saw that it was a little after 8pm. He had to find a way to engage himself mentally to stay awake for the rest of the shift. He picked up a copy of today's LA Times newspaper, which he figured Schmidt had left behind, because who but old grandpas read the newspaper anymore. Leaning back in his chair, he went to the front-page headlines and began to take in the news of the day. Amanda really didn't lie to her husband when she said she'd be working late. She actually did work late today. It's just that she told her husband that she'd be coming home at around ten, even though it was just after eight (sighs) o'clock. She didn't care. Her husband was almost twice as old as she was, and he was loaded. She only married him for the money. 
He knew it too, and it benefited him to have a pretty trophy wife when he had to go to his stuffy get-togethers with other old rich guys, with their pretty young trophy wives. Besides, he was almost never in the mood to satisfy her, and Danny, the intern at the lawn firm downstairs, was a sexual tyrannosaur. Skipping down the stairs, she emerged on the second deck of the parking garage. As she figured, the garage was nearly empty and her sandals clicked and echoed as she made her way to a parking spot which she knew, from experience, was not covered by the prying eyes of a security camera. Her husband had recently bought her an SUV, one of those nice ones with the big, spacious back seats, and even had the windows tinted. It was used, but only a couple of years old. She turned a corner, walking past a concrete post, and paused. An ugly, pale, blue and rust-coloured van had parked next to her SUV. Mm, she thought. Probably one of the Mexican cleaning crew's shipmobiles. Oh, usually they'd park their vehicles closer to the entrance of the building. But thinking that the vehicle might be an added wall to shield from prying eyes, Amanda pressed the button on her key fob, which unlocked the doors. She couldn't wait until later. She wanted it now and then later after dinner with Danny, maybe after that as well. Instead of climbing into the driver's seat, Amanda opened the rear door of her SUV and took a seat, quickly undid the buttons of her blouse and unbuttoned the buttons of her capris. She didn't want any clothing restrictions when Danny finally came down to ravage her. She reached behind her, pushing her hands underneath her blouse to unhook her bra when a dark shadow loomed up over the shit van that had parked next to her SUV. Amanda looked up from the back seat, too terrified to scream. Damn it, honey. What do you get off my back? The elevator doors closed behind a well-dressed young man wearing wire-rimmed glasses. He didn't need the glasses to see, but but it made him look more sophisticated when he worked with the lawyers at the firm of Fagus, Wormack and Klein as a legal assistant. I'm not going to have this conversation with you. When I say I'm working late at the firm, I'm damn well working late. I'm not cheating on you. He threw his blue jacket over his shoulder and loosened his tie. Look, honey, Danny continued, I'm working my ass off here, trying to make a name for myself and provide for your future and the kids. How do you repay me? You repay me by accusing me of cheating on you. <laughs> of course I'm cheating on you, you fat cow, thought Danny. You haven't been the same since the twins were born. Always complaining and nagging and getting on my back for every little damn thing. And you never lost that pregnancy weight. It's been like one year since the twins were born, and you haven't lost any of the twenty pounds you gained. Hell, you actually added weight, and you've never been in the mood. Of course I need a chick who can satisfy me. This young prince has got needs. Well, he wanted to say these things into the phone, but he held his tongue. It wasn't his fault that he was a virile stud that was going places while his wife was as listless in bed as a wet sock. He hurried down the hallway to the stairs which led to the parking garage. When Amanda wanted it, she didn't have time to waste taking off clothes. He looked down at his watch, and seeing it was past eight o'clock, Danny picked up the pace. No, honey, I don't have time to talk, continued Danny. Why am I breathing so hard? Because you're strangling me, that's why. Is that the babies I hear crying? Why don't you spend some time taking care of the babies instead of nagging me to death? Maybe then I'll have the time to come home. 
Danny hung up abruptly and shut off the phone in case that fat cow called back. He was out of the door and walked fast across the parking garage towards that familiar parking space, an excitement growing in the front of his trousers as he imagined. Amanda waiting in the back seat for him. Danny turned the corner of the concrete pillar, which blocked the view of the camera monitor to that particular back corner of the parking garage. An ugly, windowless, rusty blue panel van was parked next to Amanda's SUV, looking like the vehicular version of the beast next to the beauty. Amanda's soft, white, supple legs stuck out from the back seat towards the van, one of her white sandals already on the floor. Looking around to make sure no one was watching, Danny hustled over to the back seat of the SUV, unbuckling his trousers as he went. Amanda was ready to go tonight. Eagerly glancing down into the back seat, Danny suddenly shrieked. Amanda was lying in the back seat as he'd expected, but her right arm and head were completely missing. Danny's trousers fell to his ankles as he stood frozen, looking at the decapitated corpse. All of a sudden, a low growl and the thud of heavy footsteps coming from behind him caused Danny to slowly turn around. He closed his eyes, not wanting to see what was slowly stalking behind him. When he opened his eyes, he shrieked again, ignoring the warm sensation of urine running down his legs. Abruptly, he turned and attempted to run back towards the entrance of the building, nearly tripping from his pants being around his ankles. He pulled them halfway up to his knees, turned to see if he was being followed, and then shrieked again. Trying to pull his pants up with one hand, he turned the corner around the concrete pillar and began waving frantically at the video camera with the other hand. Hobbling for everything he was worth, Danny successfully reached the doors which led back into the building, but ran face first into the glass, creating a loud clanging noise which echoed across the parking garage. Suddenly remembering that the sliding glass doors automatically lock at 8pm, he waved both hands over his head at the security video camera mounted on the ceiling just inside the doors, before finally remembering that employees could get in after hours by using their access cards. Desperately, he reached down into his pants, which were still wrapped around his feet, and fished around in his pockets for his access cards. Suppressing a yelp of victory, he ripped the card out of his pocket and swiped it over the pad. The door swung open and Danny heaved himself inside just as his world went black. The last thing he heard was the crunch of his own ribcage and shoulder blades. Metal buckled and glass shattered as something big and black entered the building. In the section of the second floor which led to the law offices of Fagus, Womack and Klein, two men stood facing each other across an ornately carved oaken desk. Lining the walls of the dim room were oaken shelves, similarly carved as the oaken desk, and filled with various legal and criminal justice books. A lamp in the desk was the only light, casting harsh shadows around it. A tall, slender elderly man wearing a tan suit pushed four small rectangular packages wrapped in thick plastic towards a smaller man wearing a light grey jumper uniform of the cleaning staff. The smaller man picked up one of the packages, eyeing it nervously. It weighed about one pound, or a little less than half a kilo. And this will be the last time, Senor Fagus, said the man in the cleaning uniform. This will be the last time, you promise. 
Louis J. Fagus, senior partner of the law firm Fagus, Womack & Klein. Narrowed eyes filled with contempt at the little Hispanic night laborer standing in front of his desk. However, when Fagus spoke, it was with the same conviction in his voice that swayed many a split jury to acquit an obviously guilty defendant and set them free. My dear friend, said Fagus, my dear Mr. Manuel Hodango, of course I shall keep my part of the bargain. I know the struggles which your family have had to face, and I'm not going to insult you by saying I understand the financial hardships which you face. But I will tell you that I am here to help. Fagus leaned in closer. You just do this one last thing. You just take those small packages to our MS-13 friends down at the Redondo Beach Pier, and I'll do my part. I'll talk to some of my friends at the DA and file some motions with a few immigration and naturalization court judges that I usually play golf with. And trust me, Mr. Odango, you'll be reunited with your grandchildren soon. Odango nodded doubtfully, but what choice did he have? When his daughter and her children tried to cross the border into Southern California... She was taken by human traffickers, forced into drug addiction, and had been sold into prostitution. Thankfully, Odango's four grandchildren were rescued by the U.S. Border Patrol and CPS, but were now living in the confusing and frustrating red tape limbo that is the United States immigration system. And with Odango being an illegal immigrant himself, trusting this highly respected lawyer was his only chance to save what was left of his family. Okay, Senor Fagas said Odango, slipping the four packages into the large cargo pockets on either side of his pants. I'll deliver your packages to your friends at midnight, just as we agreed. Vegas smiled and nodded, lifting his hand and gesturing towards the door. The dark shadows cast by the lamp framed the sharp, angular features of Vegas's face in such a way that it made him look somewhat devilish. Odango, taking his cue, nodded and turned to leave Fagus's darkened office, and was grateful to emerge into the well-lit common area of the law firm. The glass doors to the firm opened automatically for him as he emerged into the hallway. Fagus didn't trust magnot doors, and preferred to lock the doors using old-fashioned lock and keys. The sound of movement attracted the monstrosity, as it stalked the corridors of the second floor. It stopped suddenly, Sniffing the air, then quickly turned as it followed the noise to the main hallway, which led to the law firm of Fagus, Wormack and Klein. It rounded a corner in time to see elevator doors close behind a person with a light ding sound. The massive thing moved down the hallway towards the closed elevator doors, when a part of its form pressed up against a green button mounted on the wall next to it. To the thing's right, two sliding glass doors opened. Fools, thought Fagus. Find a way to enslave a person, and they'll be your fool for life. Fagus lit a Cuban cigar as he stood at the tinted bay window of his office, looking outside as darkness engulfed the city. It was relatively easy to alter evidence documents which would allow a few kilos of confiscated coke to fall through the cracks here and there. The LAPD doesn't get paid nearly enough for what they do to protect and serve, and any opportunity to spread the wealth, including to Louis Fagus himself, benefited everyone. Besides, if Odango does get caught, 
Are the feds really going to believe that an illegal immigrant was actually trafficking drugs to MS-13 through a respected criminal defense lawyer? <laughs> oh no, Mr. Adango. Tonight isn't your last delivery, not by a long shot. I'll give you a little bit of hope and little indications that things are progressing, but you'll never see day two of your journey. You and your grandchildren will be running these deliveries for a long, long time. Vegas took a long puff of his Cuban cigar, relishing the smooth, rich taste as he exhaled slowly. Suddenly, the dim light of the lamp behind him disappeared, as the shape of something massive rising behind him was reflected in the mirror. Fagus blinked at the reflection in the window, thinking, Oh, did I just grow horns? Thank God for the California governor, thought Wilroy Jackson as he stretched out on a chair in the back room of the largest sports clothing store on the ground floor plaza. He put his feet up on the desk, taking a drag on a joint. Yep, Thank you, Governor, and thank you, Coronavirus. Two months ago, he'd been caught lifting merchandise out of a high-end department store in a part of the city where protesters were setting businesses on fire, and he hit some mother and a child with his car when he tried to escape. It wasn't his fault, though. If the cops hadn't been chasing him, he would have been more careful. Well, fortunately, bleeding-heart Hollywood social justice warrior types had raised enough in criminal defense funds that Jackson was able to hire looters. Fagus was able to get the looting charges against Jackson dropped, and all of the more serious homicide charges were reduced to involuntary manslaughter. Yeah, Jackson still had to do a little time, but that was better than doing life. But even that sentence was commuted when the governor of the great state of California released thousands of non-violent offenders back out into the streets for fear of spreading COVID-19. Jackson was loving life. Thank God for social justice warriors. Jackson's girlfriend was an assistant manager of this fine purveyor of high-class athletic clothing and shoes. She'd secreted him into the manager's office shortly before closing time and had given him her access card. All he'd have to do is to chill out until about nine o'clock when the building was empty, then take the stairs to the first floor, where the store's stockroom was the first one on the left. He'd have to be quick to get in. Janice should have left a cart for him there, and all he'd have to do was load up the merch and get out of there. The only danger was that the security room was on the other end of the same corridor, but if the guard was actually awake and paying attention... Jackson would be out in the back long before some dumbass low-end rent-a-cop could stop him. Chaz was a bleach-blonde young man working at the third-floor debt collection company. He was relatively new, having only been hired six months ago, but he'd already won two monthly cash awards for collecting the most money for two of the six months he'd worked for the Domestic Economic Management Solutions Company, or DEMS for short. On his second month with the company... He recovered over $42,000, and on his fifth month, he'd recovered nearly 53000 Chaz decided to work a little late tonight, as the end of the month was only a week away, and he was in the running to win the monthly cash award again for the Dems. The only way to get ahead in the Dems employ was to successfully redistribute that wealth, and Chaz was quickly proving that he represented the best that the Dems had to offer. He was now alone in the cubicle city, which, during normal business hours, employed hundreds of debt collectors. 
Rosa and Rita, the young twin Latina cleaning crew girls, came into the large office, locking behind them vacuums in a cleaning cart. Chaz gave them a friendly wave and a big smile. Working late again tonight, Senor Chaz? said Rosa or Rita. Chaz could never tell them apart. Ah, of course, ladies, he said. Gotta make that money. He then turned his attention back to the computer inside his cubicle, speaking into his headset. Look, Mr. Wallace, you already told me that your business was set on fire during the peaceful protests and the bank is going to foreclose on your home, but that has nothing to do with me. Your first priority is to pay off your debts. How hard is that to understand? While MS-13 was one of the largest, if not the largest, Hispanic drug cartels operating in Los Angeles, they were far from the only one. There were others, like the Los Zetas. Carlo hid just inside the stairwell on the second floor, waiting for Manuel to finish cleaning the offices in the law firm. It took Carlo a few minutes to figure it out, but somehow old, innocent, hard-working Manuel was employed as a mule for MS-13, dropping off kilos of coke usually at the piers or dockside. Carlo didn't know where old Manuel was getting his stuff, but he knew that if he could intercept Manuel and take his stuff before he made another drop, Carlo would make a name for himself with Los Zetas. Carlo peeked around the corner of the stairwell, watching Manuel pass the glass door towards the elevator. He'd give Manuel a few minutes to get to the parking garage, and then Carlo would follow. After a few minutes, Carlo opened the door and stepped into the hallway, looking towards the elevators to his right. Suddenly a loud crash caused him to jerk his head to the left. A tall, pale, elderly white man wearing a tan suit was thrown through the glass doors of the law firm. His body flew across the hallway and slammed against the reinforced windows which overlooked the plaza. The body stomped down on the ground, but to Carlo's horror, the elderly man got to his knees, clutching a hole in his abdomen where his guts used to be. The man reached forwards towards Carlo, with bloody hands and pleading eyes before slumping down, unmoving in a puddle of his own gore. Carlo bit down on his fist, too shocked to move, when something emerged from the law offices. It regarded the dead Fagus lying on the hallway floor, and then suddenly looked up, noticing Carlo. Carlo gasped, and then turned, running towards the elevator doors. Hearing the thuds of heavy steps looming closely behind him, Carlo ignored the elevators and instead ran down the hallway, taking a quick right and running past the gynecologist's office to a set of double doors on the left. Quickly scanning his access card, he threw open the glass doors and ran inside, praying that running up the stairs instead of down would slow down his massive pursuer. He took the steps two at a time, headed to the third floor. Well, his heart sank when he heard the glass shatter behind him, and the thudding of footsteps following him upwards. Rounding a corner which gave him a split second to look down, Carlo screamed. Although the narrow stairwell was only just wide enough for the monstrosity to navigate, it was actually gaining on Carlo as it bounded up the stairs. Carlo scrambled up to the third floor landing, access card in hand, and threw open the door. But before he could step through, a crushing weight came down on him splintering his spine and upper back and pulverizing his heart and lungs. 
blood shot out of his mouth and eyes. Carlo's body kept quivering, long after he'd died. Rosa, Rosita, whichever one of you is making all that noise, would you please stop? I'm trying to have a convo here. The monstrosity turned to the direction of the noise. Sniffing the air, it stalked down a wide hallway towards an open gallery of hundreds of cubicles, completely forgetting the broken form of Carlo. Jazz was seated in one of the cubicles along a wall made entirely of glass which faced the hallway. His back was to the entrance of the gallery from the hallway, and he was talking loudly into his headset and animatedly waving his arms. Look, Miss Thomas, he said sternly. Again, I heard that you lost your job due to the pandemic. Jazz had given up on Mr. Wallace the deadbeat who blamed his lack of good business skills on the peaceful protesters. Chaz thought it might have been better if Mr. Wallace had burned down along with his business. Yes, Miss Thomas, continued Chaz. I realize that you're living out of your car, but you have to put your priorities in perspective. If you don't pay off this debt that you owe, the dams will have no choice but to pursue litigation. Look, Miss Thomas, here's my suggestion. You can sell your car, Use the money to quickly pay off your debts. Then with the money that you have left over, you can get your kids something nice to eat like a McDonald's. Chaz was so close to taking the daily lead. Collecting debts was a highly competitive dog-eat-dog game and Chaz played to win. He just needed this bitch to bite. He intended this to be his last call of the night and his blood was up for this kill. So much so that Chaz didn't notice the horrible thing creeping up slowly behind him. Ah, Miss Thomas, I'm trying to put food in your family's belly, but all you're saying is that you don't want to force the Dems into suing you. Is that correct, Miss Thomas? Am I hearing that your kids have to starve because your priorities are all jacked up? Ah, Miss Shakina Thomas, mother of three children aged two, three, and six were living in their 2002 Mazda hatchback on the ghetto corner of Kansas City, Missouri. She'd been laid off from her job at the IHOP when the pandemic hit and was reduced to working odd jobs here and there. It barely fed the children and put gas in the car, but it was the best she could do for now. And this person called from the debt collection agency. Well, she tried to explain she was doing the very best that she could, but the man just wouldn't listen, and she began to cry over the phone. Miss Shaquina Thomas suddenly heard what sounded like a shriek, followed by a large crunching noise over the phone, before the battery went dead. Rosa and Rosita had just about completed mopping half of the hardwood floors out in the hallway, and were returning to the maiden's closet to dump the dirty water and refill their rolling mop buckets with fresh water and pine cleaner. As they passed the gallery of cubicles, they were met with a sight of blood and gore, as something which should not exist was feasting on the annoying young white man who always made snide comments to them behind their backs. Either Rosa or Rita screamed, Chaz would never have known which, and the horror looked up. In two bounds it crashed into the glass wall which divided the gallery from the hallway, but the reinforced glass held. Rosa and Rita abandoned their mop buckets and raced down the hallway as the monstrosity launched itself at the cracked glass again. Turning right at the end of the hallway, 
Rosa and Rita screamed as they saw the smashed shell of what was left of their co-worker Carlo blocking the stairwell going down. They screamed again as they heard the glass partition behind them shatter, followed by thudding feet following close behind. Running halfway down the hallway, Rita stopped at the elevators, frantically pressing the down button. The monstrosity turned the corner just as the elevator doors opened. Rita pushed Rosa inside the elevator, then jumped in herself just as the black monstrosity leapt. Rita was screaming, frantically pushing the door close button, but the doors were slow to respond as the thing crouched outside and made to burst into the cramped elevator space. Suddenly, Rosa and Rita each pulled out a small three eighty handgun from holsters which were strapped around their ankles underneath their grey work pants and began firing at the horror just outside the doors. As the doors finally started to close and the elevator began to descend, the twin Mexican cleaning girls yelled at their tormentor. Los Zetas, bitches! Though confused at what had just occurred, as it wasn't used to prey escaping, the monstrosity sniffed the air around the elevator doors, then turned to the stairwell. Once again stomping on poor Carlo's body as it passed, the unearthly hunter bounded down the steps, eager to catch up to its prey. Wilroy Jackson checked his watch, and seeing it was past nine o'clock, knew that it was time to get the show on the road. Using the pass card that his girlfriend had given him, he opened the door to the back room which led to the private stairs up to the first floor. Once there, he peeked out the window of the door to make sure that the coast was clear. Then he looked up to the ceiling and spotted the surveillance camera. Jackson had dressed all in white. White sweats, white hoodie, white sneakers, and white gloves. When he saw that the coast was clear, he put on a white mask and pulled the hoodie over his head. This wasn't Jackson's first rodeo, and he knew that it was difficult to identify suspects who dressed head to foot in white, especially with the low-resolution cameras which most security companies used. In less than three seconds, Jackson was out the stairwell door, turned right, swiped the access card, and was inside the treasure room that was the storage room of the sporting goods store. As promised, Jessica had left a push cart for him just inside the door, which he immediately began to stack with boxes of Air Jordans, Nike Air, and Adidas sneakers, each pair of sneakers costing several thousand dollars each. In less than a minute, Jackson had about twenty pairs of sneakers stuffed into the sturdy plastic cart, and soon he burst out of the storage room. Pushing the cart in front of him, Jackson turned left and raced down the hallway. If the security guard was on his game... Jackson figured that he had a one-minute head start on the rent-a-cop. At the end of the corridor, he pushed the cart to the right and continued down the adjoining corner, running past the maintenance closet, the water meter regulator closet, an electrical room, and another stock storeroom. He just had to get past the break room and the stairs on the right and reach the service door at the end of the corridor on the left, which led to the parking garage. Once outside, all he'd have to do is take an immediate right and squeeze himself and the cart between a retaining wall and a concrete pillar and push out from behind the bushes surrounding the first-level garage area, which then led to the sidewalk with Flower Street on his right. Just up the street, Jessica had parked the van, 
which they'd stolen to make their escape south to get on the Christopher Columbus Transcontinental Highway and freedom. Jackson had just passed the break room. The door to the parking garage was just 20 feet to his left when the stairwell doors to his right exploded outwards. Jackson was thrown against the wall opposite, along with about $100,000 worth of high-end sneakers. He slumped to the ground, and before he could recover from the shock, felt an incredible pain below his waist, accompanied by a loud crunching sound. Confused, Jackson turned over and pulled himself as far along the ground as his arms could take him, wondering why his legs weren't working. He died, not realizing the entire lower half of his body was missing. The thing bowed its head, nudging the corpse and sniffing. Suddenly, lifting its head, it froze. It took a deep breath and jerked around and raced down in the direction that Jackson had come from. The horror turned the corner and stopped as it began to stalk the corridor past the break room to its left. Near the end of the corridor, the thing saw a door that was propped open by a sliding chair. What? Bradford awoke with a start, momentarily confused as his world was covered by a suffocating filter of haze grey. He reached up and pulled Schmidt's newspaper away from his face as he stood up abruptly. He looked at the clock on the wall, showing that it was past nine o'clock. He'd been asleep for over an hour. He cursed, trying to calm himself down. What could have happened in an hour? Bradford sat back down to view the monitors and was horrified at what he saw. Monitor 19 showed a man's ripped course bloodying the entrance to the second-floor parking garage. Monitor 26 showed the disemboweled body of a thin, older man wearing a tan suit sprawled out on the main hallway of the second floor. Monitor 41 showed someone that looked like one of the cleaning crew guys that Bradford had seen earlier, crushed and mangled in the stairwell on the third floor, while what looked to be the remains of one of the office workers was lying in the deck collections gallery on monitor 42. Bradford stared unbelieving, throat dry and eyes wide as he continued to scan the monitors. He knew that they had to call for help, he knew that he had to call for help, but what would he say? His fingers were too frozen to move, anyway. He scanned the first-floor monitors, the floor he was on, and saw two young women dressed in cleaning crew uniforms, running out of the parking garage, both pointing handguns behind them as they ran. Panning to monitor 42, Bradford gulped dryly as he saw the gory, half-eaten body of a young man lying in the hallway, surrounded by piles of bloody sneakers. Wait, that was just around the corner. Oh my God, that means that... A hot breath enveloped Bradford from behind, followed by the stench of blood and uncooked flesh. Bradford turned on his chair and came face to face with a terrifying beast of nightmares. The thing stood over him with a mask like that of a bull, only much larger. It stood on four legs, with its muscular front legs standing seven feet high at the muscular shoulders and ending in massive paws at least a foot and a half across. Its shoulders were as wide as its legs, at least seven feet across, and it supported a head that seemed almost too big for the rest of its body. The head resembled that of a bulldog, 
but four feet wide, with a flat snout and a wide nose, but with an oversized mouth that extended as if on unhinged jaws that revealed dagger-like teeth about three inches long. It had two massive horns which protruded from its temples like a bull, and they hung over wide-spaced eyes which glowed a fiery deep red. The body tapered towards the rear and ended at a long, muscular tail. The tail itself ended in a spike which seemed as strong as steel, which scraped, sparked, and gouged as it waved around the room, randomly smacking into objects in the ground. Bradford leaned so far back in his seat that it almost fell over. Resting his arm behind him on the desk to steady himself, Bradford raised his left hand up protectively across his face and smacked the monstrous black beast across its fanged muzzle. The beast yelped in surprise and then turned, fleeing towards the far corner of the room with its tail between its legs. Reaching the corner, the beast turned, faced Bradford, and flopped down on the floor, plopping its massive horned head down and covering it with both of its massive front legs. Its flaming red eyes peered out from underneath its paws, whimpering pitifully. "'Ach, muffins!' yelled Bradford, standing up and pointing an accusing finger at the hellish beast. "'What did you do?' The beast yelped again and covered its eyes as Bradford stormed over to it. The beast kicked its rear legs, trying to back its rear end further into the corner, as if trying to make itself as small and inconspicuous as possible. Still hiding its head under its paws, the beast shivered as it panted and licked its mouth. Bradford stared down at his poor little friend, hunkered in the corner, all shaking and confused. Oh, he tried to be angry, but how could he be angry at the little girl? She was just a pup, for goodness sakes, and hellhounds are known to be especially hungry when they're growing pups. Bradford thought back to the cross-country journey which eventually led him here to Los Angeles. He picked up his pale blue windowless panel van from New Jersey from where he began his drive to his grandparents' farm in Ohio. It had cost him a pretty penny to ship it from Scotland, and he'd managed to get a flat tire somewhere in Pennsylvania in the middle of the night. While he was changing to the spare, Muffins somehow got out of the van and ended up in a restricted U.S. Army training area where the military were conducting some kind of nighttime land navigation for cavalry scout trainees. Oh, fortunately... Bradford was able to attract Muffins back to the van before she ate one of the soldiers, although the local papers did print a short blurb about one of the army scout trainees being tracked by a Bigfoot. A <laughs> Bigfoot? Really? That Muffins had been known to get up on her hind legs to sniff around. No one could mistake her for a Bigfoot. Bradford laughed when he read the story at a local garage where he got his tyre replaced. If Muffins really wanted to eat that soldier... She would have found him. What a big mess that would have been. Once in Ohio, Bradford stayed for about a year with his grandfather and grandmother on their farm in Jefferson. It was one of those communities where most of your neighbors were farmers and homesteads were separated by vast tracts of rolling foothills. Bradford's grandparents owned a large enough farm and had an expensive enough plot of land in their rural and quaint farming community that a neighbour missing an occasional chicken or goat or hunting dog didn't raise much of a concern. Muffins was practically just a newborn back then, and she only stood as tall as a Great Dane. 
Plus, her coat was still a pale grey with streaks of darker grey along her flanks, instead of the pitch-black fur that it is today. It wasn't until a few weeks ago, when the remains of the runaway Smith girl was found on the outskirts of his grandparents' property, that they got suspicious. The Smith girl went to the Jefferson Area High School, and her parents had grounded her when they found out she was dating the Schumann boy. She ran away two weeks ago, and her bloody clothing and shoes was all that were found on a lonely stretch of road which ran parallel to the eastern boundary of Grandpa's land, which led to Mill Creek. Soon after the police investigators had left, Bradford's grandpa began asking questions which Bradford had no good answers for. Why haven't they seen Scooter, their pet basset hound, for the past week? Why were the cows and pigs going missing at their neighbor Winslet's farm? Most of all, after only a year of living on the farm, why was Bradford's dog so big that it was now a full two heads taller than Molasses, Grandpa's Ohio State Fair Blue Ribbon Award-winning giant steer? And what were those two pointy things growing out of Muffin's forehead anyway? Bradford thought he was doing his grandparents a favor by releasing Muffin at night to hunt beyond the boundaries of their farmland, but apparently that would not be a viable solution anymore. That night, Bradford went to the ATM in town and cleared out his bank account. He put his clothes in an army surplus duffel bag, before whistling for muffins and stuffing her in the back of his old but trusty windowless van. Obediently, she climbed in, the van's rear shock squeaking in protest. Seeing as muffins barely had the shoulder room to move, Bradford resolved that, when he could afford it, he'd purchase a bigger van perhaps even a bus. They drove south for the rest of the night across the state. After crossing the Ohio border, they stopped in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Bradford got a cheap motel room on the outskirts of the city next to a truck stop. The taste of the skinny, crack-addicted prostitute that Bradford picked up at the truck stop didn't agree with muffins, and she spit out the body parts, licking her butt to get rid of the poison taste. Muffins gave Bradford an annoyed look, but he just held up his hands and shrugged. They left Pittsburgh right before evening and continued driving south, and the unfortunate residents of a mobile home located on a lonely stretch of land in the mountains satisfied Muffins for a while as they crossed into West Virginia. They'd traveled south through Skyline Drive and the Shenandoah Valley where Bradford allowed Muffins to get out and stretch her legs. Only a lone camper went missing that weekend, who probably wouldn't be found for a long time after Bradford and Muffins had left West Virginia. Westwards they drove, through Kentucky, southern Illinois, and Missouri, Bradford avoiding as many of the major populated towns and cities as he could. In Kansas, Muffins managed to wrangle down a heifer on a lonely field in the middle of the night. She didn't eat again until Utah, when early one morning Bradford happened to spy a portly, middle-aged fisherman pushing a small boat out into the Provo River for a little pre-dawn fishing. Well, that was... what? Seven days ago. Bradford put his palm to his face, kicking himself. Oh, Muffins, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it had been so long since you'd last eaten. No wonder you were so hungry tonight. Muffins tilted her head, staring at Bradford and whimpering. Come on, girl. Let's get out of here. But first, 
Bradford walked to the black table, ejecting all of the DVRs which had been recording the day's events. Muffins eyed him curiously, wondering if she was still in trouble. Here, girl, said Bradford, tossing the DVRs at the hellhound. Muffins leaped up, easily catching the discs in her mouth. She chomped down on them as if they were crunchy doggy trees. Then, with a confused look on her face, spat the broken and chewed plastic pieces out and began licking her butt. Those tasteless, crunchy treats weren't yummy at all. She looked at Bradford, confused. Bradford picked up the newspaper he was reading earlier, before he dozed off. In bold black letters, the headlines of the Los Angeles Times blazed a story about rioters and looters in Portland, Oregon, were being snatched up by men wearing uniforms and badges and being dragged into unmarked vans. Bradford smiled down at his security guard uniform and badge. Well, he thought to himself, here's a bunch of folks that no one will miss. Come on, girl, said Bradford, snapping his fingers and whistling. Do you want to go on a road trip? Do you want to go to Portland? Come on, girl. Muffins jumped up and down excitedly, happy that all seemed to have been forgiven. Her mouth flopped open, and her tongue wagged as slobber and spittle flew everywhere. The heavy thuds of her excited bouncing knocked monitors off the walls and toppled computers onto the floor, while her horns accidentally dug huge gouges into the walls. Bradford laughed, grabbing muffins by her scruff and hugging her, saying, Who's a good girl, eh? Who's a good girl? Dogs, eh? Truly a man's best friend. Even if it is a hellhound. Well, bit of a surprise that one, wasn't it? I bet you didn't see that coming, did you? I'll tell you what, I certainly didn't, but what a fantastic twist to the end of that story. Good doggy, good muffins, eh? Sorry for those in Portland. Watch yourselves. There's a hellhound on the loose. <laughs> well, that's enough for me for one evening, but I'll be back again very soon. Looking to get back to work on my second channel, so... Please pop over there if you haven't been doing so recently. Sorry it's been um, a bit quiet, but aiming to resolve that now. Well, that is enough for me for one evening. So very, very sweet dreams, everyone. And bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this story today. It really means a lot to me and to the author of the story, of course. Well, if you want to know more about me, I'm pretty much everywhere on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can download my music on SoundCloud. Um, I've got a Patreon if you feel like. Throw me a dollar or two. Very much appreciated. And of course, on Reddit, I have a place where you can leave stories if you want me to read one that you've written. Well, hoping to see you all again very soon. Till then, sweet dreams. Bye-bye.